0: Welcome to the Nonprofit Tech Podcast, presented by FusionSpan. My name is Justin Berniski, and I am joined today by Elizabeth Engel of Spark Consulting. Say hello, Elizabeth. Hi, everyone. And Shelly Alcorn of Alcorn Associ- Associate Management Consulting. Say hi, Shelley.
1: Hey, nice to be here. Thanks for having us. So
0: I have them on today because they just came out this very interesting white paper, uh, Blockchain for Associations, Separating the Hype from the Promise. Uh, and so... Th- It's blockchain, I think, is such a fascinating topic and is so big, but it's been around for a while. So Elizabeth, high level, can you kind of talk about what is blockchain? And is not it just a database that doesn't let you delete?
2: Fundamentally, yes, fundamentally, blockchain is just another type of a ledger style database. Um, And this is a quote from a, a white paper that we ourselves reference in our own white paper, but it allows, quote, mutually mistrusting entities to exchange financial value and interact without relying on a trusted third party. Um, and unlike with cash transactions you can do this virtually aka over the internet so you know it it allows us to record transactions related to things that have value they can be physical things like a head of lettuce or a piece of art or a diamond or, or whatever they can also be intangible stuff like uh, music files or other types of intellectual property etc and so then I think that, to me, then begs the question, well, if it's if it's just another ledger-style database that lets us do business, even if we don't know each other or trust each other, but we don't have to involve a third party, then why do we need this? And I'm going to let Shelley answer that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting. As we've been watching blockchain evolve uh, over the past few years, there are... A lot of institutions that have been set up, like banks and insurance companies (laughs) and trademark and patent offices and all manner of third parties, have been set up to facilitate transactions between two people to verify that this person does own this, to verify identity, to verify those things, in order to transfer those rights to another person. And in an increasingly sped up world, and an increasingly distributed, globally distributed world, those intermediaries are creating friction in the system. Because it takes days to settle transactions, for example, if you're in the States and you're wanting to send money back home, sometimes it takes days and a lot of fees for an intermediary to transfer those funds on your behalf. And so blockchain has presented us with the opportunity to remove some of the friction in the system in terms of those third parties. And as we continue to accelerate into this exponential growth curve that we're on, uh, blockchain can be one of those technologies that does allow for transactions to happen at speed in real time versus waiting for days to get things done.
2: And there are a couple of things that make, or a couple of characteristics that make blockchain ledgers or blockchain databases different than other types of databases where you might be recording things. One of them is the whole idea of it being a single ledger so normally, if we're doing any type of transactions, um, you would have a ledger and I would have a ledger and I don't know what's in your ledger and you don't know what's in my ledger and we're all keeping our own records um, and all of that is, is hidden. And that's part of what, you know, lets people get away with cheating each other if there's not some neutral third party kind of keeping an eye on the transactions to make sure nobody's behaving in a shady manner. Um, but with blockchain, everybody who's in that particular blockchain network sees the transactions and has to approve the transactions. So I can't be over here cooking my books um, and, and you don't know that I'm doing it. And you know, all of a sudden you don't discover it until a third party auditor gets in there and says, you know, oh my God, there's this huge problem. Um, and relatedly, the, the the blockchain database, it's it's not logically unhackable and there there are starting to be instances of blockchains being hacked but it's extremely difficult to hack so the best way to describe that is it's not tamper proof but it's tamper resistant again because 51% 51% of the people who are in the network have to approve changes that you make and everybody can see what's going on. It is also immutable. So that means, I, like if I made a mistake in a transaction that's in the past because the, the, the blocks build on each other, that's, that's the blocks make a chain. That's where the name comes from. Uh, the blocks of information make a chain. I can't go back and say, oh, you know, I, I transposed digits in that entry, earlier entry and I have to change that entry and then it'll, it'll somehow fix everything that went after it. No, it, it, that can't happen. It, you know, that bad entry is there and I have to make a correction entry later on. Um, but you cannot change what happened in the past. Um, and so all of this, these are, these are the components that allow people who don't know each other to be able to trust each other to be exchanging value. That doesn't mean that you don't have to trust anyone or anything at all, it's just, it's changing the locus of trust. So right now, um, you know, if two people who don't know each other want to exchange money, we have to use a bank or the Venmo app or a credit card company or something like That neutral third party who's gonna make sure that I actually have the money I say I'm gonna give you and then you actually get the money and then I can't then tell somebody else oh no I still have that money I'm gonna spend it with you too right that's the double spend problem right we need that third party that can do that with blockchain you can actually trust the network which means you do need to trust the network and you need to trust the people who coded it and set it up that they did a good job and all that kind of thing but it doesn't require that third party person that then as Shelly pointed out, wants their cut and adds their time onto processing that transaction.
0: That, I mean, that's that's very helpful. I think with this coming out right now, I have to imagine you've had a lot of people who feel like they know everything about blockchain as well approaching you. What are some of the common misperceptions you've seen out there? And Shelly, I'll start with you. What are, what are you hearing from people now that you've got this white paper out there? Uh, People coming up to you and making comments that are just way out of left field or just completely wrong.
1: (laughs) Oh, there's always those, right? (laughs) You know, life is sort of a bell curve and anything you run across is a bell curve. Um, And there are people on one end who say blockchain changes everything. Banks are disappearing, you know, it's it's going to take over the world, it's going to eat the world. And then you have people on the other side going, ah, this is a flash in the pan, no one's going to find a real use business case for this. So you sort of have those outliers and and we get those responses from people like, why did you write this? Like, you know, I'm not interested in blockchain, this isn't going to affect me. Or the others who are like, oh, this paper's too late because it's already eating the world, you know? <laughs> so, so, and those are sort of the misconceptions. And the, the, the truth is always in sort of this messy middle. Um, and, you know, our message to people is, no, blockchain may not affect you today, but one of the reasons why we wrote the paper, it is, ma- it is the fact that blockchain has matured enough with sample use cases that are playing out in various parts of our economy, such as education, such as banking, such as insurance. (laughs) So and manufacturing supply chains. And so these real world use business cases are really starting to demonstrate the, the reach that blockchain could potentially have. So, you know, aside from the It's brilliant. It's perfect. It will lead to a utopian society and the other side of the coin. Ah, yeah, you know, another another technology thing. Who cares? You know, the the truth is in the middle and and now is the right time to write the paper to direct it to associations and nonprofits um, as a way to begin to demonstrate these real life cases may not affect your association or necessarily your nonprofits mission at the moment but they may very well impact them later on, and your members in particular. And so that's sort of sort of the case. You know, we've seen wonderful uses of blockchain in terms of establishing permanent identity for refugees um, and for migrants uh, to demonstrate skills, to demonstrate competencies, to demonstrate education, uh, to to establish an identity aside from a social security card or something else that you're supposed to carry with you that you may lose uh, along the way if you've been forced out of your home or forced out of your out of your arena so micropayments things like kiva thing there are lots of nonprofit uses um, for mission-based cause-based organizations uh, as well as members of associations who need to get up to speed and then the associations themselves to provide some leadership
2: you know, one of the other, I think probably the the most frequent, actually, now that I think about it, kind of uh, misperception or, or misunderstanding that, that I've heard in the, I guess, about two months since we released the white paper is people think that blockchain is and only is Bitcoin, and then they look at that and they say, well, okay, but isn't that mostly used by criminals to buy illegal stuff online? Like, it's, blockchain has this, a Bitcoin has this kind of shady... Reputation for some very good reasons. And so one of the guys that we, that we worked with on the white paper, one of our contributors, is a guy named Tim Haynes, um, who runs a tech consulting firm called Signal and & Story. And he, the way he puts it, which I think is, is, is very good and very succinct, is that when you look at what's going on in sort of media coverage, tech media coverage in particular, of the blockchain ecosphere, 80% of the attention is on Bitcoin. And an additional 15% of it is on other types of cryptocurrency. So basically 95% of the attention that's out there, that's on this technology at all, has to do with crypto. And all of the really interesting stuff, some of the things that Shelley just enumerated, are all happening in the additional five that is not really getting a whole lot of attention—at least not yet. That sort of, you know, social innovation and social good innovation, and, and all that kind of thing, that's in that other five percent. And so, you know, that's also part of what we're trying to accomplish here: is to help people understand. Yes, Bitcoin was in fact the first application. So it's the most mature application. And with that, you know, there's, there's been more work so far in cryptocurrency than in some of these other areas. But these other areas are the things that are starting to develop now and where there's real potential for sort of widespread socioeconomic change and, and again, sort of social good change as well.
0: Well, I think, you know, talking about these examples, I think definitely if anyone hasn't read the white paper, they should go check it out. We'll make sure and link to it in the show notes. And I reading through the white paper, I thought it was really interesting. A lot of the examples, you know, seem to focus and really emphasize the value of having a single centralized b- blockchain. That would be the it would be most efficient. For example, you know, my edu- you know, my education, I get a undergraduate degree, I get my high school diploma, it goes on my education blockchain, then I get my You know undergraduate diploma and it goes on my blockchain my education blockchain and then i get my master's and that also goes there now i think ideally it's all i wouldn't want each university to use their own record blockchain so do you and because i'd want all mine to be together do you envision that this is ultimately it's going to be the direction where while initially maybe there are a lot of different players out there that the ecosystem's gonna move towards a few dominant players that are similar to the way we've seen with social media to some extent, particularly with public blockchains?
2: Yeah, this is is definitely one of the challenges is that right now there are all these different blockchains out there and for the most part they're not interoperable, so you sort of you sort of have to dance with the one that brung you, right? You're like, you're kind of, you're like whatever platform you choose, you're kind of stuck in that ecosystem, at least at the moment. So yeah, that is that is actually a challenge. And then it also gets to the issue of kind of who owns it, right? So the educational one is is an interesting, and I should back up, the, the blockchain is owned by the network that, that creates it, but sort of then you get to the question around something like education, where is like, what's the locus of ownership there? Is it a university or a university system or all universities altogether? Or is it people where, you know, I, where I own my personal educational blockchain? And that's, that's part of a big ecosystem of personal educational blockchains, and then as I'm earning credentials, I'm giving those different uh, conveyors or awarders of the credentials the ability to write that information onto my blockchain. These are, these are some of the questions that are that are kind of coming up as these networks are starting to come online and use the technology, the platform, for something other than just cryptocurrency.
1: Yeah, there are a lot of innovators who are playing around with and establishing their own versions of blockchains, and so there's a lot of, of innovation around the edges. But Justin, you pointed out something extremely, you know, important, and that is that eventually Yes, I believe there will be some single players um, that become dominant uh, in terms of whether it's, you know, API interoperability or whatever it happens to be, but there's, there's going to be some amount of, of standardization. Um, education is a good example, financial transactions and real estate is another example. Um, if governments begin to use blockchain, as they've proposed in a number of different countries, to track birth records and death records and adoption records, <laughs> and sort of establishing identity, that that in a globalized system, eventually those things have to be portable. They have to to go with you regardless of what nation state you live in (laughs) or originated from, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So yes, I I believe that even though lots of people are playing right now, that eventually those things will start to coalesce, especially if systemically it it begins to wrap around an individual's life, and at that point the stakes become very high. You know, the the stakes in the the scenario that we lay out in the very beginning as far as how you conduct yourself and how you live your life and how you navigate through educational, financial, you know, systems. Um, it's it's going to be interesting to see how that works and how that happens. Um, and I think eventually standardization or at least API functionability or interoperability or something will be necessary.
2: And I will say, if this is an issue that you as the listener of this podcast are particularly concerned about, uh, there are two places I would really pay attention. Um, One is IBM. IBM is, has gone all in on blockchain technology and blockchain platforms, and they are doing a lot of work to establish partnerships around things like the food supply chain, other types of supply chains. Um, you know, uh, working with Walmart on the food supply chain, working with Maersk, um, the, the world's largest international uh, global shipping company, on sort of global supply chain moving goods and uh, goods from from A to B. Um, And the other place I would pay a lot of attention is actually in education, personal opinion only, but I think that education is going to be sort of the next place behind crypto where we see some blockchain maturity starting to happen for a couple of reasons, one of which is universities have research money um, and universities have access to people who are interested in, in studying sort of the latest things in tech. And there's been a huge amount of work done in that area. Um, actually, the, our, our, our big case study from the White Paper is about Central New Mexico Community College um, and some of the work they're doing with student-owned credentials. But They are by far not the only university uh, or college system working on this. Um, and so there are a lot of really good uh, coalitions out there in the sort of post-secondary education space that are trying to figure this out.
0: I mean, I, mean, I think that's, That's so fascinating to see how this is going to evolve over time and see how things change. So, And I think, um, you know, one of the challenges, understanding blockchain is a lot of times, I think people just think, you know, they only talk about blockchain, but my understanding is there's really different levels. So like similar to a SQL database where you have the SQL database and then you have the user interface that most people will interact with blockchain there's the actual blockchain but then on top of that you have an interface to actually interact with the blockchain and insert information into the blockchain so how do you see that playing out in the long run you know you talk in the paper about removing sort of the middle the middle person in a process um, but don't you just if you have someone who has to build these user interfaces doesn't that just end up being the middle person um, or is it somehow different with blockchain
2: yeah that's uh, that's a really good point um it's this gets back to the whole idea of you you still have to trust someone um it's just i i don't have to trust you and we're not having to trust a third party that's charging us money we're basically we're basically trusting whoever it was who set up and programmed the blockchain now that raises some very interesting questions such as what happens when things go wrong right all of a sudden you no longer have an authority you could appeal to. Um, one of the stories we relate in the white paper, and I'll, I'll come out and admit that I'm the idiot who lost my private key, and therefore lost access to almost $2,000. But uh, years ago, I had gotten um, somebody had thanked me, and this was this was shortly after bitcoin was first came out um and so you know at the time it was worth almost nothing um and somebody thanked me for a blog post they really enjoyed by giving me one tenth of a bitcoin um and i i claimed it you know um and didn't really think anything more about it then in december of 2017 um bitcoin was worth uh almost eighteen thousand dollars a bitcoin um, which would have been $1,800 for my one-tenth of a Bitcoin and I couldn't find my private key and I looked everywhere. I looked everywhere I could think. I, looked, I, it was, I, I, I was worth, you know, willing to put some time in to try to find 1,800 bucks that was lying around. Um, and yeah, just I, I, that is gone. That, that $1,800 is gone. I can never recover it because I lost my private key and the guy who gave it to me can never recover it either because he gave it to me and now he does not have it anymore. And yeah, this gets back to the whole thing of, okay, so, you know, we've got to depend on somebody here. There's still some levels of trust. It's not completely removing all need for trust and authority and all that kind of thing in the system. It's just changing the players. And so, you know, one of the big concerns with associations is we hear oh it's removing intermediaries and we freak out right because that's that's what that's what we do that's who we are That's we are the intermediaries you know in our in our professions or in, in industries or at least we're one of them um you know and and people tend to get a little uh worried about the idea that you know oh my god you know the internet didn't kill us although we thought it was going to and social media didn't kill us although we thought it was going to you know this is the thing it's going to kill us um but in fact there is still a role for someone to be a trusted party where we can all, as, say, competitors in an education space or competitors in, uh, you know, grocery uh, purveyors where, you know, we're all trying to work on this food supply chain, blockchain, right? We're all competitors, but we wanna use blockchain, so we have to trust somebody to set it up for us properly so that it it functions and you don't end up in a situation where you've you've lost $1,800 and you can't get it back. (laughs)
1: Ah, it's it's, oh, my heart just breaks for you on that one.
2: <laughs> my own stupid fault.
1: Uh, lessons
2: learned. If only I had that's... known.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but that kind of brings us to, you know, sort of the, the concept of, you know, the, the, the third party uh, is sort of transforming into the Wizard of Oz behind the curtain in a way because the technology will do what the technology does and what it's programmed to do, hopefully it's programmed well, but it will do at the transaction level where the intermediary, intermediary used to be, it removes that, but it puts it one step removed, where there will have to be some amount of dispute resolution, technology resolution, you know, those sorts of things, but that's sort of the, the underneath. That's that's where the, the trust is going to shift a bit. and this provides really an important role for associations, for nonprofits, and for people uh, to begin setting up standards for blockchains as they're developed and as they apply to your particular, (laughs) your particular arena. You know, I know associations are doing a really good job right now. Some of them are at watching very carefully the American Bar Association comes to mind. They've been really kind of open minded about it. They haven't been completely rejecting it, but they've been watching it very carefully. But we're allowing a lot of tech folks without maybe a lot of legal expertise to set up sort of legal blockchains. And I think, you know, it may be time to talk about setting up those approved standards for blockchain innovators and creators to follow when they're working with these different industries and professions. And I don't think that that's something that associations or nonprofits um, should be setting aside or outsourcing to another person or just assuming that the tech wizards are going to figure it all out. And we don't have to worry about it. We'll just use the product. Um, I think that associations can take a more active role uh, in determining what the best use case, what the best use case scenarios are um, for industries and professions where it's being used.
2: I think this also brings up kind of another key distinction or key key point of the underlying technology, which is what kind of blockchain are you setting up? So there's um, there's private blockchains and there's public blockchains. And generally speaking, private blockchains use, like how do, you des- how do you decide who gets to join it? It's something called proof of stake. Public blockchains, how do you decide who gets to, to join it? It's proof of work. So, Bitcoin is a proof of work public blockchain. That means anybody in the world with a computer that's connected to the internet, or any, actually any device that's connected to the internet, can join the Bitcoin network. And how, how do you go about getting yourself a Bitcoin? Well, it's proof of work, right? I do the work to solve, it's basically, Bitcoin is basically creating the encryption plane while they fly it. I basically solve the next method, very difficult mathematical problem in the series to keep the encryption that runs the whole network going. And if I solve it correctly, and it's verified by the rest of the network that yes, I really did solve it correctly, then I own the, that coin like I just that was my proof of work that I get to have that coin right and so anyone who wants can join it it's completely wide open and then you're really trusting you know that that the people who built the thing in the first place did the tech right okay in business applications that is not gonna work the business applications of Bitcoin or, oh, there I go a blockchain business applications of blockchain um, are a hundred percent at least so far private proof-of-stake blockchains. What that means is I know all the players. I might not trust them, but I know all the players who are in the network with me. And they've basically offered some sort of a hostage to ensure that they behave correctly that's their proof of stake you buy into this particular blockchain network and if you break the rules however it is that we and the group have decided to set the rules up for how this thing is going to work you forfeit your stake uh, and again that's you give something of value um, that is held hostage to ensure your good behavior within our network
0: i mean yeah that's it, there's so many levels of Questions here. I think, particularly thinking around standards, reading through the white paper, one of the things that stood out to me is uh, there's there's an opportunity for transparency. But so much of uh, you know what the United States was founded on was the idea of privacy, and the idea that you wouldn't you'd have that privacy to some extent. How how are you seeing blockchain in a lot of ways? Once you're kind of in, it's it's there. You can't like, oh, you know what? Actually, I don't want you to have that information anymore. Let me take that. Oh, I can't take it back per se. So how how do you speak to people who you know with that concern of privacy? How do you address that aspect of uh, a public blockchain in particular?
1: That's a really great question. Um, And it was something that I was really concerned about when I first heard about blockchain and I first started doing the research. And actually counterintuitively, it turns out that we may actually have more privacy with a blockchain than we have right now with the amount of data that google and facebook and linkedin is just hoovering up from us with every purchase we make on amazon you know i bought a book recently on amazon and i had a google ad show up in my facebook stream on another recommended book on the topic and it was just like okay this is like enough (laughs) but one thing that is interesting about the blockchain is many of them are are being created with user permission to view so you actually as the user control who you let see your particular transaction history and you do that because you want to facilitate the next transaction versus all of the transactions that you've done So even though it's a public blockchain in terms of things like supply chains and purchases and and all of these things, actually the the users themselves can not only give permission for people to see their data, but they can also monetize their data directly back to themselves. Right now Facebook makes the money on my data. (laughs) They use it, they sell it to marketers, they do whatever they want, and they're the ones making the money off of my private data. If the situation were reversed and Facebook was sort of a social blockchain, (laughs) if an advertiser wanted to know what I typically read on Amazon, I could sell them that information. It's like, okay, you give me a hundred bucks and I'll give you access to my purchase history on this, that, or the other thing. And so. Oddly enough, even with the idea of a public blockchain that you are you and you are identifiable, you know, really that 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 responsibility actually rests with the user. Now is that going to be completely unhackable or is that going to be completely bulletproof? Is that going to be, you know, <laughs> subject to, to all manner of weaseling? <laughs> Who knows? It's still kind of the wild west a little bit. Uh, But I actually am am less concerned about privacy issues with blockchain uh, than I am with privacy issues with all of the other services that we use on the daily and just assume that this is just the way life is.
2: You know, and interestingly with, one of the things about public blockchains is what they're preserving even more than privacy is anonymity and so you know if were i were i to set up an account with with bitcoin and and get going or any of the cryptocurrencies there would be no way to tie my account there back to who i am as a real person which is part of the reason it was so popular to be used to buy stuff that was illegal because i could buy it and you could never figure out who it was that actually bought the thing that I, you know, drugs, or whatever it was that I wasn't supposed to have. And so, you know, and as, as Shelly points out, you get, you get ex, as a user, you get extremely granular control over your data, so not only is the thing of, ah, I can, I can give you access to my purchase history, it's, I can show you that I purchased this one thing, and that's all you get to see. You don't get to see any of the rest of it, only that I purchased this one thing. Um, you know, one of the things that I've been on a soapbox about recently one of the many things um is you know this whole revelation that's come out that you know alexa really is listening to you and recording your conversations those are going back to a processing facility where they're using those conversations to train the ai to provide a better you know personal voice assistant experience which is that's all completely understandable right like if you're gonna train the voice assistants to actually do a good job, they need massive amounts of data of all different kinds of people with all different kinds of accents and vocal patterns and all that kind of thing, um, asking for all kinds of different things. The problem is, it's your data, right? You know, it's, it did not happen transparently, You didn't, you didn't consent to do it, there's no easy way to opt out of it, and you're not being paid for helping to do the work to train Google's AI. In a blockchain world, none of that would happen. You would have to give consent, you would be able to control exactly what kind of data Alexa could access, and you would be paid because you own the data.
0: Yeah, I, I, and I, you know, Shelley, to your point that you could then sell your information, it probably wouldn't be $100, it'd be one 100th of a Bitcoin, right? Just so we're fully...
1: right right if i was using crypto now you know it, it, the 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 thing about cryptocurrencies and fiat currencies of course you know fiat currency is a nation state currency the us dollar being an obvious example of that the the fed right now is looking at <laughs> blockchain transactions as they apply to real fiat currency as cryptocurrency um and as you digitize these things sure it's possible it not only might it be part of a bitcoin but it also might be 25 cents <laughs> or a dollar depending on which currency system you're working with so you know china south korea uh russia is working on the crypto ruble like there, there so there are there are use case scenarios beyond crypto and the actual you know finance and you know it, it's another thing is like it's just it's, I, I realize realized that services like apps, for example, like Zillow. Who hasn't used Zillow, right? And to find out what homes or rentals are in your area, et cetera, et cetera. But the other day, uh, I was with a friend of mine and (laughs) she asked me, you know, how much I'd paid for my house and I couldn't really actually remember. It's been a few years and you know, it's somewhere in the range of blah and I'm gonna owe on it for the rest of my life, but yada, yada. And she just whips out Zillow and looks it up and says, oh, you purchased it in this for this. And I just sat there and went, oh, ow, ow, you know, like that hurt, like, <laughs> like I know it's a public record and whatnot and so on, but it was like, man, if, if those real estate transactions were done in a you know, public manner, but in, an anonymous kind of manner, you know, et cetera, et cetera, I might have less information out there circling around um, about those sorts of things. So, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's gonna be really interesting to see how this plays out.
0: Well, thank you both. This has been a really fascinating conversation, and hopefully we've uh, piqued everyone's interest, and they they should definitely download the white paper and read it, but if they have any other questions or things they want to learn, what next steps, Elizabeth, what next steps would you recommend people consider taking?
2: The first thing that I would say is MIT has a terrific free e-newsletter about block that's entirely about blockchain called chain letter and the link to sign up for it is in the white paper if this is if this topic is of all of interest to you is it all of interest to you um sign up for chain letter and and start getting it and, and the other thing that i would say is again ibm has really gone all in on this and they have a tremendous amount of free resources including like sandboxes and all that kind of stuff go check out ibm's resources on blockchain, again, they're linked in the white paper. They have everything from sort of some really interesting, very high-level reports that are kind of more for executives, or things that you could share with your board of directors, which I think shelly's probably going to talk about in a minute, all the way down to like developer tools. Um, you know, so you could sort of get the, the full range there.
0: shelly anything else you want to add to that list, or? And I, I guess I should throw out there: I, I, my brother would be mad at me. I, um, he has a book. Actually, my brother Christopher Berniski wrote a book on crypto assets. Uh, so if, <laughs> you should definitely
1: keep it in the fam, man. Yeah. Um,
0: so if yeah, if that I if, you know I'm a little biased, but it's <laughs> it's it's called crypto assets, the innovative investors guide to Bitcoin and beyond. Um, if you want something else that's obviously more focused on the crypto side, but he really feels like it's they call it crypto assets as opposed to cryptocurrencies because it is he feels like it is more than just a currency. So. But yeah, Shelly, th- Shelly,
2: or- did, you, did, you, did, you, did, did you want to talk a little bit about sort of the whole thing with getting your board ready for this?
1: Um, yeah, you know, the, the, just the, the final message we want to leave is that your association, your nonprofit, your board of, board of directors needs to start reading up on this. They need to start thinking and asking their members about what impact blockchains having on their members. You would be surprised what your members will tell you when you ask them the question about things that you think are worthless and meaningless to them. (laughs) So start asking them questions and start looking through, establish a futures task force. And if you want to get a really good high level look, our bibliography is extensive in this white paper, but the book Blockchain Revolution by Dan Tapscott uh, I th- or Don Tapscott is the best place to start. It has TED Talks, <laughs> has the book. It's, it's a quick, easy layman's read uh, and for, the, for a single source to really kind of start wrapping your head around it, that was the book that introduced me to these topics, and I think that it is a really good book. So please start thinking about how to start asking these questions at your board. Set up a task force, a futures task force, to start looking at this business use case and think about the standards that you need to start setting. And that's our best advice. Because, you
2: know, the thing that I, would, that I would say for associations is there's a real opportunity here firms that are in your industry or profession that are used to being competitors are going to have to collaborate in ways that they are not used to collaborating if you're if your industry or your profession is going to atop, adopt blockchain successfully um which means they're going to need help to figure out how to do that collaboration in these ways that they're not accustomed to collaborating um because Truly, like a blockchain network is very much strength begets strength, a rising tide, you know, uh, uh, floats all boats, et cetera. I mean, the the, the network is only strong if all the partners in it are strong. Um, And that, all of that, all that collaboration and, you know, rising tide lifting all boats and all that kind of thing, that's all very much within association mission to try to benefit. Um, and and do good for the entire industry the entire profession that we search so there, there's an opportunity here If we don't miss it um, And that gets back to something that, that Shelley talked about earlier is there's a lot of tech players starting to eye this space and Look at opportunities, and you know, this is this is sort of our opportunity to either take advantage of or to blow
0: well thank you thank you both so much if someone is not google or facebook if they want to find you on the world wide web on any other topics where where can we find you all online
2: uh my website is get me spark uh all one word getmespark.com. everything's there <laughs> and you can find me
1: at dot associates.com or at the association forecast blog all
0: right wonderful well thank you both and have uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast today and i'm sure Uh, We'll see more great stuff from you in the future.
2: Thanks Thanks, for having us.